I'm so honored to be here and, and share this uh, moment with you. It's historic. Well, I have a theme for you this morning. It's these words, remember, imagine. There's a passage that's so simple, we read past it so quickly, you're at risk of losing it. It's Proverbs 31, 25. There in a passage that's, that's titled, A Woman of Noble Character. Verse 25, what is it like to be this person of noble character? Verse 25, she's so clothed in strength, she's so clothed in dignity, she laughs at the days to come. She actually laughs at the future. And can we say the people of Flint Central are so clothed with dignity and strength while the rest of the people are freaking out about the future? What's the culture of this church? We're laughing at the future. Why would that be? The original Hebrew word describing this person is that she's got the future's number. She knows the game. The Hebrew word there means, when it was originally written, that she makes sport of the future. She teases the future. She mocks the future. It's like she's saying to the future with taunting sarcasm, Oh, future, you with your little menacing, fearsome growl, you're so strong and foreboding. Oh, oh, what will I ever do? She's mocking the future. And just when the future bears its fangs in its greatest effort to intimidate her, this woman of noble character breaks into almost like, a, I imagine, a nasal laugh, like... You're ridiculous. She, she's mocking and taunting the future. You can't intimidate me. That's what the Hebrew word is there. I've got your number. I know how you operate. I have more dignity. I have more strength than that. And she's what? Verse 25, laughing, imagine it, laughing at the future. Remember, imagine. The question of the hour is, after you get home to your kitchen table, after the glory of this service is done, let's get real. Are you laughing at the future? I know what it's like. I live in a real world. I look around. There's plenty of reasons to have a laughless life. COVID complicated what was already a crushing mental health crisis. We see the highest race tensions in 20 years. The political acrimony is hitting a low. Congress has a 15% approval rating. Why is it this morning when I'm watching the news, CNN is reporting a, an effort to nationalize a suicide hotline number? We live in the most affluent nation in world history. But if suicide is spiking, Apparently, materialism doesn't work very well because the people who are the most affluent don't even want to live in the world we've created. In fact, basically, Americans agree on so little, it's laughable, we're so tribalistic and so divided. I actually did find one thing that most of us agree on. In Barner Research, a national poll, 80% of Americans do agree that our culture is in moral decline. <laughs> so if we're to agree... It's that. We are capable of living in a way that 
imagine it, laughs at the future because we have so much confidence in a sovereign God who holds that future. I had teenage daughters once. I used to say to them, you be a quality young woman, you're going to attract a quality young man. Quality attracts quality. Oh, Dad, they did. It worked. You should meet my sons-in-law. They're rock stars. Hey, parents of teenagers, you have some biblical proof here. Character was the reason Boaz married her. It actually works. But here's the best part of the story. Have I lost you yet? Are you playing Candy Crush on your phone? Am I going too long? Oh, don't. Hold on with me. Here's the best part. In a most unlikely circumstance, this self-sacrificing peasant girl, Ruth, becomes the mother of Obed, who begat Jesse, who begat David, who begat Solomon, who wrote about the woman of noble character. Ruth was Solomon's great-great-grandmother. You see what I'm saying? I'm not hijacking the scripture here. Is it a poem? Is it meant for rhetorical flourish? It's written like an acrostic. It's describing an archetype of certain kinds of people. By the way, it's not even have to be genderized. Guys, we have a place in this too. No doubt Solomon is writing this inspired by the Spirit. It says the authority of Scripture. It isn't just authored by Solomon himself. He's writing this because he knows the family folklore. He knows what his great-great-grandmother lived like that is bestowed to him. You see what I'm saying is there's a formula here. Remember, imagine, Flint Central, life's not hard, excuse me, life is hard, life's not easy, and in this area in particular, I grew up in Fenton, I had a dad who had a business, I know about the importance of General Motors, I've, I've heard an employment level of 50,000 down to 5,000 in GM, it's hard. I know about the national embarrassment of the water crisis. I know about the residual economic pain of COVID and loss of population density. Why in the world would you laugh at the future? Because you're like Ruth. Because you've been, been made vulnerable by your circumstances, and yet you have a testimony of God's faithfulness. So you remember so well how hard it was and you remember so well how faithful God was, and boom, shakalaka. Now it's like, oh, it's, it's a technicolor future, actually. I'm not just, like, working this up. I'm not trying to persuade somebody. It's, like, rooted in my actual memory of God's faithfulness to real life and hard times, not a fictional story of some nice thing. It's out of all that, the reality of God being in our life now. Oh, now I have a technicolor imagination for what God might do in the future. Well, everybody else is white-knuckling. What are you doing? You're giggling. You're giggling about what might come. But how? Like, what's the logistics of this? How does it work? How do I frame a posture toward the future like that? I'm going to be 53 next month. I know you're thinking my, my hairline suggests 73, but kind of hold the jokes. I've got the defective gene. So, you know, I, I put a lot of mileage on this thing. 
I call this my vanilla dipped man suit. You know, I've earned my wrinkles. I've earned these spectacles. I've earned this hairline. I've been through some stuff. My life, I guarantee you, is not as easy as you might think. I've been through bitter things. But here's something I've learned, and God willing, I'll learn more. I've at least learned this, a principle for life. Memory begets imagination. It does. I think this is how it works. Every one of us has an art gallery in our mind. And the pieces of art in your mind are your memories. And when you have a disappointment, that hangs an ugly piece of art in your mind. And when you have another disappointment, you have another ugly piece of art, and it's like the gallery of your mind is filled with negativity, and you can park there, and all you do all the time is you stare at the ugly art of your mind. You get resigned to your life. Behind your eyes rests a dim resignation. God will never surprise me. He'll never transcend my circumstance. Life is what it is. But there's a different kind of person. They also have an art gallery in their mind. This person has also lived real life, like Ruth. This person also has disappointment. All of us, if you live enough life, will have ugly art in your mind. But you know what the second person does? They hang art that's beautiful in their mind that is a testimony of God's faithfulness. They too have disappointments, but they also hang art, and they remember God did come through for me then, and here's the beauty of it. You get to hang other people's art in your own gallery. So when somebody else sees God's faithfulness, and they are living examples, and they testify it, you get to borrow that, no charge included. You get to hang that art there too. And that second person, let's be real, that life's hard. Life's hard. Life is full of disappointments. But the second person's art gallery is filled with beautiful, technicolor, vivid art. And that fuels their imagination. Like if there's an empty canvas in your mind, person one assumes, ah, dark, gloomy colors. Person two assumes, oh, I can't wait for what God's going to paint on that. I can just like see it. I can feel it happening. Like you're giggly and excited. You, 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 you know what's going to happen. You ever hear that one about uh, there's some people at uh, a stoplight waiting to cross the street and uh, it's been raining a few days. So there's, a, there's an optimist, a pessimist, and a cynic. And they're waiting across the street and it's been raining. And so the optimist says, Ah, oh, you guys, I know there's clouds up there, but we're due. It's been raining five days. It's our time. I bet you the clouds are going to part. And the pessimist looks at him and kind of rolls his eyes as they're apt to do. Do you have one in your house? And they say, ah, uh, no, it's rained five days, therefore it will rain again. Duh, this is the pattern that we're stuck in. It's just going to be gloomy. Well, then, you know what the cynic says? I'm certain it's going to rain because the clouds have something against me. They put, like, agency and will in the forces against them. Like, it's never going to change. 
That's not what the people of God are. That's not what Ruth modeled for us. That's not what Solomon wrote to us. She's so clothed with strength and dignity, she laughs at the future, a future that's held in God's hands. What are the markers of this person who hopes in God and laughs at the future? One can laugh at the future in God when they believe God is always at work, even if it's outside my awareness. Now, this is Michigan. I know some of you ice fish. Even if you don't ice fish, you know what it's like in winter. Things get gray and, and lakes get frozen over and you drive past them and you look at the surface of things, the most external apparent view of things, and what do frozen lakes look like? Gray and dead. You know life is teeming under there. You know that there's all kinds of aquatic life swirling around there. You know it's true. We teach this to our children. We, we know it's true. It's factual. I'm telling you, a person who can laugh at the future in God is someone who believes God is always at work even if I can't see it yet. Amen. You live in Michigan. You should know better. I'm, shaking. I'm getting preachy. I'm waving my finger at you. You know better. And a marker of a person who can laugh at the future in God is somebody who believes he has sufficient power to break through any situation, any time, including tomorrow, and I'm not being silly by saying that. I've had situations in my life that were high-stakes decisions that required me to move from state to state within three days. And I remember seeking counsel, and how should I discern the will of God in this? I just don't know. And I remember the person said to me, don't forget when we pray for the will of God, sometimes he'll direct like, like tomorrow. And do you know that we went home and something happened in our lives the next day that freed us up from any entanglements and off we went. I'm a living example that sometimes God can break through a situation at any time. It's kind of like this. Like I, I, I sit in my office. I think this way all the time. I, I sit in meetings. I tell people this all the time. I'll say, hey, you guys, I know it's an ordinary Tuesday. We're just having a 10 a.m. meeting. It's a weekly meeting. It's mundane. You came in here not expecting anything special out of it. It's just a Tuesday. I'll tell them, look out the windows. Look at the cars going by. I know what it's like. They don't expect anything out of this ordinary Tuesday. They're doing errands. They're going to Target. They're going to the grocery. They're getting something repaired. Nobody expects anything out of this Tuesday. But somewhere a miracle is happening today. A breakthrough by God into an impossible situation. There's a hospital floor where a woman brought to tears, struggled to get pregnant, and she's come to that point where today at 10 a.m. that baby will be born and she'll be, she'll be ruined in tears, emotional, realizing that she never knew how important this was. She never even prayed about whether she could get pregnant, but she got so desperate she begged God for a breakthrough and it happens for her right down the street in the hospital today. There's somebody else who has a business trouble and they are up nights and they're not sleeping well and it's about over and you can't get any more loans. And they're driving by at 10 a.m. and they're thinking nothing's going to break through today. I've lived the life. I know the stories. This actually happens. There are times that God is always at work and he can break through any situation anytime. And it happens on Tuesdays at 10. I had a breakfast last Friday in Cracker Barrel. What special thing can happen in Cracker Barrel? I asked for oatmeal. It wasn't even on the, the, the menu anymore. Just ordinary. I sat there with a guy, and I was telling him about Olivet's future, and he said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. 
last Friday in Bourbon A at a Cracker Barrel. No credit to me. It's a four-year story that matured at the right time. Boom. Didn't expect much from breakfast. You've you got to get this in your spirit. You're never going to laugh at the future unless you believe that God is always at work, even if you don't see it, and he can break through anything, anytime, including the hard thing. Here's the last one. Here's the last one. Oh, we're not playing around today. I've got a heavy one for you. One can even laugh at the future in God, even when trouble lings longer than you can take it. Even when trouble is lingering longer than you think you can take it, yes, you can still laugh at the future. We have a beautiful, God-breathed theology of suffering. Why would a loving God allow me to suffer? Because suffering... And I have suffered. I've got stories. Suffering's kind of like this. You're, you think you're standing on a steady platform in life, and boop, it collapses, and you fall down into a cavern you didn't even know existed there. You have whiplash in your life. Like, I didn't even know this was possible. And you get yourself up, and you're dusting yourself off, and trying to, you're disoriented, trying to figure out what just happened, and boom, that platform collapses, and you descend into yet another cavern you never knew existed. My misery was compounded. And sometimes it's not just like a two or three month thing. Sometimes it's year, two, three, four, five, ten years. And it's like you just keep thinking, this can't get worse. I keep, I keep thinking that what I'm standing on is stable and it's not. Our theology of suffering has you looking up from that abyss, up wanting to climb out and saying, God, if you loved me, why would you allow this to happen? And we get it wrong. We think that our job is to climb up out of there and return to normal. Like, I just want this over with. We treat our suffering, pardon me if this is sensitive, but we treat our suffering kind of like having a, a brain tumor. Like, just cut it out. Cut it out, get it out away from me. I want to have a normal life. This is not our theology of suffering. A loving God would only permit you to collapse into a cavern if you would climb out of that cavern changed as a different person. God's project in us is actually to fit us for eternity, not temporal. His project in us is not to make us wealthy, but wise. His project in us is not to make us healthy, but holy. His project in us is not to make us generically successful in the eyes of the world. It's to have us be in a constant posture of surrender so our soul really is fit for eternity. If you think that God only loves you based upon the scorecard you keep, that you get your stuff, you're going to spend a long time in the cavern. We have a theology of suffering that works. T.D. Jakes. I think he's a fantastic preacher. I think he's one of the greatest preachers of our time. He's in Dallas. He has a megachurch. He's Pentecostal. He brings it and he sweats. He's a better preacher than I am by far. When I was going through a difficult time, my wife, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, she doesn't like it when I say that, she says, you need to read this. And she stuffed the book in my hands. It's a book by T.D. Jakes called Crushing cover is a picture of grapes and you know making wine you crush it so he's using that as a metaphor why would God crush me what is he trying to do I love this analogy 
He said, when you're going through suffering and you're a believer and you're trying to have hope for the future in God, when you get wounded, you've got to decide whether it's a dagger or a scalpel. Is the wound you feel a dagger or a scalpel? The dagger intends to hurt you. The scalpel intends to heal you. This is hard. This is bitter. But holiness comes from that. Wisdom comes from that. A life of surrender where your soul is fit for heaven comes from that. And you find yourself able to actually endure something you thought you couldn't endure, real life, and you find yourself realizing what the scripture says, this is so challenging, but the scripture says, I actually find a way of rejoicing in my hardship because it makes me complete, lacking nothing. I'm standing before you as one who has grown through difficulty and hardship, and now on the other side of it, I thought, oh, that was a scalpel. That wasn't a dagger. I was incomplete. That thing made me more complete. I'm, I'm better equipped now to serve than I was before. This isn't fun, but you've got to ask yourself, if you are going to be like Ruth, like Solomon, if you are going to remember God's faithfulness even through hard things so you can even laugh at the future, you've got to say, it's all scalpel. If I'm serving a sovereign God and he's really sovereign over all things... Ultimately, there's no dagger stuff going on. God has a way of making it all for good. Didn't Jesus say the way it works is, I'm going to prune some things off of you so that place of pruning flourishes more? What is pruning? It's cutting. Some of you who are gardeners do that. You know what I mean. Temporary pain for multi-generational flourishing. And so... I'm concluding now. In fact, I think our choir is going to return. I'm grateful for their ministry. Remember, imagine, there are dysfunctional forms of memory. Greg, what kind of memory are we talking about so that we can laugh at the future? Well, I'm not talking about amnesia. Amnesia blocks the residual benefit of relational or career or moral failure. We should learn. We should learn and not forget because we can grow from it. We can improve from it. Uh, nostalgia, not the kind of memory I'm talking about. Nostalgia so enshrines the past, it actually distorts the truth, and it tricks us into sustaining old patterns that aren't even worth keeping today. We need to be people of our time. We need to be a church of our era and not hold on so closely to the past that nostalgia actually distorts the truth. So the memory, the very specific kind of memory I'm talking about is this. It's testimony memory. The only way we're going to remember and imagine is if we are testifying people, a testifying church. I remember how God brought me through. He did. How did he bring you through? He did. All of a sudden, the art of my mind is changing. All of a sudden, it's not just ugly art. I'm populating my inner life with all of your stories. This is why we say the church is the bride of Christ. This is why we say the local community of faith is a beautiful thing. Because we nurture hopefulness in God and each other through our testimonies.
My last words are this. This is not the church of Ruth. She, her name is not on the sign. This is not the church of Solomon. His name is not on the sign. This is the church of Jesus Christ. What is his stake in this? Oh, did you forget? There's a reason we call him the high priest. The highest and perfect high priest. It's because he came to earth. He suffered. He knows firsthand what your hardship is like. He died. He rose. And what is he doing right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Jesus is looking down and he's saying to the Father, I know how hard it is. I experienced that myself. We have to help Bob. We've got to act now, Holy Spirit. We've got to help Sarah. We must act. He is defending your interests as we speak. So I'm calling for a kind of a crazy challenge here today. Would you walk out of here today on this 100th anniversary laughing with me at the future? mocking it, teasing it, saying, you think you have fangs to scare me and intimidate me. Actually, that's not how it works. My sovereign God was faithful in the past, and I know he's going to be faithful in the future. Praise God. We'll laugh at it all. Amen? Amen. Thank you.